Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. This week, I'm excited to welcome a special guest, David Gardner. David is the Motley Fool's co-chairman, chief rule breaker, and host of the Motley Fool's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. And he's joining us today to discuss his approach to investing and how he's used it to select energy and industrial stocks over the years. David, thank you for joining me. It's a delight, Nick. And I really appreciate your focus on energy and industrials because while I've often done more work picking video game companies or uh, or internet plays. Uh, the truth is that for years and years now, I have enjoyed looking in your areas and trying to find what are some great companies. They, they may not all be true rule breakers, and I know we're going to talk some about that, but I, I think it's it's they're great companies. These are important areas of, of our society to say nothing of the stock market. So I really appreciate your focus here, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And yeah, to, your, to David's point, we're all true journalists here at The Motley Fool. We're paying attention to things that are going on all over the stock market. And I think I, that helps us uh, be better analysts. So we've got a great conversation planned. I pulled out four energy and industrials themes that pop up across David's picks and stock advisor and rule breakers. But before we get into those individual stocks, I just wanted to frame the conversation a little bit and talk about David's approach to investing. So just first off the bat, David, if you had to explain your approach to investing in one sentence, how would you do that? I try to find excellence, buy excellence, and add to excellence over time. I sell mediocrity. That's how I invest. Yeah, very, very simple approach. Find the best transformational companies, get there early, hold them for the long term, hold them longer than just about anybody else. So what do you look for in those companies? You put out your, your six signs of a rule breaker. Why are those criteria important to you? What, what are those criteria? So yeah, we, we have six traits that we're looking for in the stocks that we buy, or in my case, recommend to rule breakers and stock advisor members. And uh, sh- real short course, right? So we're going to go through six real fast here, Nick. The first one is top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. So you think about energy and industrials, well, you might think about some older industries that have been around a long time and still until you start thinking about solar, for example, and you think about what an important and emerging industry that is. So we're looking, if you're fishing in that pond, if you, if you focus all of your investing just on the top dogs and first movers in important emerging industries, you will, by the way, have a fair share of losers because you won't be right every time, but the winners will win so wonderfully. At least that's been my experience that you'll be delighted. So that's number one. And of the six traits, I think that's the most important one. Number two, we're looking for a sustainable competitive advantage. Nick, you just mentioned, I try to buy stocks before most and hold well after everybody else. If you're going to take that approach, you darn well better have a competitive sustainable advantage in that company because you're holding it for years, if not decades. So we're always looking for companies that have those moats, as Warren Buffett has often said, um, around the castle of their profits and, and possibilities. Number three, we love stocks that have excellent past price appreciation. Now, this is something that can bedevil some people because they've heard buy low, sell high. But in my experience, when companies are winning and the stock market is recognizing that, Assuming it's not all about to come to a crashing halt, and when you're looking at important emerging industries, that's usually not the case, uh, you're really well rewarded for going ahead and hopping on the bandwagon. It, it doesn't feel great to buy a stock that's doubled in the last six weeks, and yet that's exactly what I did when I first recommended Amazon in 1997. It had doubled 
in the previous six weeks. And yet I learned with wiser, older eyes that that's actually a great sign uh, of success that will likely persist. But so many other people take that as reason not to buy the stock. They think they missed it. They anchor to a previous price, et cetera. That's number three. Four, five, and six. Number four is good management, smart backing. It's about the people. Uh, I think a lot of us at The Fool know that, the importance of cultures. You're investing in cultures as much as anything else. They typically outlive products and even people, but the people are the ones that are building the cultures and who's investing in that company as well, what venture capitalists. Uh, so that's part of the reason we love founder-led companies at The Motley Fool is because it's the people. Number five, I love good brands, especially consumer brands. That is the case among some industrials, but others are very much um, yeah, B2B or Set, set well back from the consumer. So brand doesn't make sense in every case, but darn it, when you can find a brand, which by definition to me is the promise that a company makes every day and has to fulfill on that promise, Amazon has to deliver you that thing within 48 hours or so. Otherwise you're going to stop trusting them. Starbucks needs to taste kind of the same on the West Coast as it does on the East Coast of any country these days, right? So the companies that do this at scale are really powerful. What's the best, biggest brand in the world? also the best, biggest company. That would be Apple. And so those things are not random. Those things are directly linked to each other. And finally, number six, we're looking for companies that everybody thinks are overvalued. And the reason this works is because so much of the world will look at early stage companies and think that's crazy overpriced. They have no profits. People said that for years and years about some of our best stock picks. Um, but if everybody thinks they're overpriced, then nobody's really buying the stock. And as those companies succeed over the course of time, they're going to end up converting those skeptics, not just into customers, but often into shareholders. And so that's the wall of worry that these kinds of companies climb over time. So those are the six traits we're looking for in rule breaker stocks. And you know, if I can find all six, I'm going to feel great about that company's prospect. But even if I just find three or four of those, usually that's enough for me to seriously consider buying stock or recommending anybody else do same. Right. So, David, you mentioned earlier how important it is, the, the important emerging industry, a top dog in an industry like that. And to a certain extent, you're predicting that it, this industry is going to become you know, groundbreaking. And you mentioned uh, you're going to have your fair share of predictions that don't, don't come right. And you may have your, your fair share of losers. So that comes into how you put together your portfolio. When you, when you buy stocks, how do you size positions? How do you think about this inevitability that some of your, your choices are going to be wrong with how you structure your portfolio and put it together? Well, I think it's really important because that's, in the end, what we're all doing. You can find a winning stock here or there. You can have a lot of losers, which I certainly have as well. But it's, a, it's not about those. It's about the portfolio. It's about what you're building. So I will just mention for anybody who enjoys podcasts, and I sure do enjoy industry focus myself, um, I dedicated a podcast to this just a few weeks ago. It was the January 13th edition of Rule Breaker Investing. It's entitled Six Principles of a Rule Breaker Portfolio. You might start figuring out that I like lists of six principles. Nick, we're not going to go through that right now, but I'll pick one of them uh, as a preview. Uh, and that's what your sleep number is. So some of us know the sleep number company with the mattresses, and you might dial to a different setting than your spouse. Um, and, and, and you can dial these days mattresses to be the right firmness for you. Well, I think the same should be true of portfolios in this regard. Here's what I mean by what's your sleep number. Your sleep number in an investing context is what is the percentage of your overall allocation that you would ever give to a single stock at the maximum. In other words, if you allow your winners to run, which is a big part of my style of investing, how large, how much of the pie 
how large a slice would you let your largest slice ever get? And for some of us, those numbers are radically different. So quick examples, uh, the sleep number for most mutual funds today is about one. Most mutual funds own hundreds, dozens or hundreds of stocks, and they don't allow their percentage of allocation to go up much above 1% or in some cases, 5%, right? So those are very low sleep numbers. Uh, you know, and the reason I say sleep is because it's all about sleeping at night, right? So, so what is the largest you let something get to before you start losing sleep? And I would suggest you don't let your portfolio get over that. So this principle, I hope, is something that each person's different, right? Your number is probably different from mine, Nick. I will say my own number is very, very high. Mine is probably 80. Now that sounds irresponsible to most people until you start thinking about a lot of people who are entrepreneurs like me, and we're all shareholders at our company, at The Molly Fool. And for me, my own net worth is much more tied up in The Motley Fool stock and how it does than my portfolio. So in a sense, I'm one of those founders. My brother Tom's like this too. I know some of us listening right now to us can relate directly to this. That's a huge part of our net worth. And I'm comfortable with that, but many people wouldn't be. You have a lot of wealth advisors trying to get people to sell off their stock and get those positions down. I've also had in my past stocks run up like AOL back in the 1990s and become a large part of my net worth. I'm comfortable with that. It's a little bit more of a venture capital mentality. But anyway, the question, the operative question, what's your sleep number should help guide your portfolio construction? So, David, this isn't a question I, I planned, but your, your, your kind of answer made, made me think about it a, a little bit is kind of what's the importance of, of optimism for you for investing? So when you get a position up really big, it's this idea that, oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to lose these gains. They're going to go away. Or you talk about grossly overvalued by the financial media. It's the same idea that it can't get better. Right. This is as good as it's as good as, as it's ever going to get. How important is optimism and just this belief that it's going to keep getting better um, to how you think about buying stocks? Well, I, I think everything is contextual, Nick. So I, I would say that that is true of many of my favorite things in the world. They, they keep rising. Let's just think about the stock market. Look at the S&P 500 over the last century. It keeps going up. What do I think is going to happen in the next century? The same thing. And why? Well, there are lots of factors as to why the market goes up over time. But the biggest one is simply human ingenuity. We're all working hard. The majority of our country is in the private sector, not in the public sector. So we're all working hard at businesses trying to deliver a better product or service to make consumers happy, to add joy to their lives and have them become you know, fans of what we do and grow it. And certainly we feel that at The Motley Fool. And we're so grateful to think that we've got so many people listening to your podcast right now. That's so exciting to me that we're reaching people, right? So, so a lot of stuff grows, but not everything grows. So some of the fad stocks of the last few weeks that had unbelievable moves. That's very temporary. I don't think, for example, those kinds of companies are going to keep going up forever. That's a very short-term phenomenon. So I think you have to sort out what is persistent and what is sustainable from the things that aren't. But once you find the things that are persistent and sustainable and that are growth-oriented and add value to the world, that's where we want to be hitching our portfolio's wagon to those stars and that's what I've tried to do my whole life long. And so, yeah, I, I'm certainly an optimistic person. You don't have to be an optimist to be hired by The Motley Fool. We have a lot of realists. We probably have a few pessimists too, but I think for the most part, the world is to the doers and the doers are the ones who say, yes, I think we can. And usually they go on to do it. And I think that's a really operative condition for success in business and for the stocks that we buy. All right, David, I think, I think that's great. I think it's a great 
jumping off point to move into some of these kind of themes and energy industrials uh, that we talked about earlier. I said earlier, I picked out four of them. Uh, so the first one I wanted to talk about is railroads. So we talked about earlier the importance of an important emerging industry. You couldn't think of an industry that is less emerging than railroads, right? The 1850s <laughs> was the railroad bubble. Uh, why why is this, does this, this uh, industry fit into your, uh, your universe of stocks that you're interested in? Well, first of all, Nick, I want to thank you for looking over all of the different industrials and energy picks I've made and actually grouping them up into a few themes. These are actually your themes that you've come up with, and but I certainly agree with them. And I, you, you put in extra due diligence that I'm not putting in because I'm more think about, I'm not thinking about trends or sectors. I, I never really have cared about sectors as an investor. I'm just really thinking about the companies like the company itself that we're looking at. And I want to be a part owner of that company, not that other one. But then they start to group up and in some themes and you've identified those. So the first one, railroads, I mean, yeah, I love railroads. I, I personally have always enjoyed um, riding uh, on a train. Uh, I remember being a little kid with overnight trains up to um, from Washington, D.C., where we grew up to to the northeast. Uh, the Vermonter, um, I, you know, I, I, I love board games. A lot of board games have trains among their themes. Simple games like Ticket to Ride are much more complicated games. So I've just always been a railroad fan. But I think the reason that this has been a great place to invest is because it is timeless. I mean, it's kind of like beer. Um, railroads have not been along nearly, uh, around nearly as long as beer, but it's at this point in time, it's one of those things you can picture staying in place for the rest of our civilization. And, uh, and so I really like those timeless businesses. And certainly a few of them, we can talk about one or two of these companies, but I just really like their positioning. I'll also mention these tend to be oligopolies. So you've got just a few big players. And so you can kind of own the whole industry with a few stock picks. And I just think it's a great industry to be invested in. It's still such a cheap way to move stuff from point A to point B relative to many other ways to do it these days. Yeah, the other thing to think about it is energy efficiency. A lot of people are talking about emissions and those sorts of things. When you talk about the, just the sheer magnitude of goods that you can ship on the railroad and, and the energy efficiency you can get, you're not going to find a replacement anytime soon. Not to mention, I don't think anybody's going to be putting in any new railroad track anytime soon, at least not on the incredible <laughs> scale that we've had them you know, built all over the country. We have 100 years of, of building this stuff, 100 plus years of putting this infrastructure in place. It's a great point. Unless Elon starts digging underground and creates all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, but, but we'll be invested in that too. I really like your point though, Nick, that this is a timeless business. Those tracks have been laid and boy, do we as a society every day benefit from the energy efficiency and the cheapness of transportation that this amazing network has built out, not just for our country, but around the world. Yeah, so, so maybe we'll talk about one of those companies. So Canadian National Railway is on your, your scorecard, was first recommended in Stock Advisor, March 2008. I think it's an interesting time because you think about 2008, the economy uh, at, at a very low point, railroad railroads can tend to be exposed to what, what's going on in the economy. They're, they're basically where, where trade is done. And so they're, they're exposed to trade. You know, why, why did this jump out to you as an opportunity for you back at that time where, where there was a lot of volatility in the market? Well, I'm pretty sure. I mean, this is now just about 13 years ago. So I have to admit, I don't exactly remember where my mind was. I will say it was March, 2008. Things were starting to go down. We were not anywhere near like the nadir of the great recession of 2008, nine. It was early days there. But I, you know, a lot of times I'm just kind of casting around for what's a company that I'd want to recommend. I don't think I was trying to time in advance of a big drop off or anything. I was thinking again about what I said earlier, what makes sense, what is timeless, and, and what is good for the world. And so uh, 
there's probably something else to be said just about just the ubiquitous branding. I see the CN railroad cars, Canadian national here across North America. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, I looked at the financials. That's always really important. I don't exactly remember what I saw 13 years ago. I'm just really happy to think about this. And Nick, this is thanks to the work you've done, but I'm seeing the stocks up about 462% since then. The market's up 286, right? So isn't that wonderful that we're up about 175 percentage points on the market averages? If you just bought the S&P 500, you'd be well down to buying and owning Canadian National also pays a dividend and, you know, love it for the next 13 years. Yeah. So what I like about the idea of the railway is this, this is one of those where like, so I have a railroad, so it's right by our office at, at, in Alexandria, uh, Molly Fool's office. You can watch that, 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 uh, that railroad go by every single day, count, carrying just countless uh, amounts of goods. And that's one of those, those companies where if you just look out your window every day when the railroad goes by or just listen, you're like, I think business is still doing okay. Um, and there, there's, not, there's, there's a few businesses out there um, um, that are that way. So I wanted to move on uh, to the second theme. There's a, a bunch of different industrial niches that I think you can you could call out uh, out of your universe of, of stocks. But I think the one that was most interesting for me is trash. Okay, why? <laughs> There's two different companies that, that fit in the trash category. I want to talk about both of them. But just why is trash in the David Gardner rule breaker uh, universe? Of, of Why is this something that jumps out to you? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I mean, we need to get rid of it, right? We need to collect it. <laughs> We need to process it. One of my biggest pet peeves of all, and I've done full podcasts just around pet peeves, but one of my very biggest is littering. I think that there is zero excuse for anybody to litter. I don't care what culture you're from, um, uh, what neighborhood you're in. I think there is zero. You are not allowed in my mind to litter. I always love it seeing the $500 uh, you know, fine if you litter. I'm not sure anybody ever gets charged for that, but I really, really don't like littering and trash. I love that we're cleaning it up for profit out there. The companies that you're mentioning are just great companies. Isn't it awesome to think that we live in a world where people go to work every day cleaning up for others and get paid for it and actually paid enough that they can pay a dividend and grow great companies over time. So I'm really grateful for this. And I think, Nick, you know, I, I realize it doesn't sound that exciting. It's not like biotechnology genomics. We're talking about trash, but I'm all about what's a better world, right? What's the world that you and I want to live in? I've often said in the past, make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. Well, certainly an area, a niche, as you're mentioning, that I favor is a cleaner world. And so these companies do that. Yeah, so, so the first one uh, we'll bring up waste management. Um, so the second most most recent rack among the, the companies we'll, we'll talk about, um, recommended in June 2019, one of the largest uh, waste management recycling companies in the world controls about 20% uh, of the market. Um, what, what can you tell us about how, how this company, I mean, that, that may give it away to you right there, 20% of the market in, in, in an industry that is absolutely necessary, but but what jumps out to you about waste management as, as a stock for folks to invest in? Yeah, well, I, I would even, I would, so yes, all of those things are true. And I you know, that WM logo on trucks in my neighborhood, yours and lots of other people's too. I really think that the company has kind of ensconced itself in our society. And I think it's just really well protected uh, from competition in the sense that it's doing work people don't generally want to do. And it's doing it at scale. And, uh, and I think it has that brand piece. I realize this is slightly overstating. It's not like an Apple or Netflix brand, but but I really, waste management isn't the, my favorite phrase to say either. But, you know, WM, I think it's worth really respecting what they have done. I think Wayne Huizenga, by the way, was one of the co-founders of this company. The guy who ended up owning all the Florida sports teams and uh, doing a lot of good work besides. He's no longer with us. But 
part of his legacy, which reminds me that, you know, so often these companies are created by real visionary types of people. And to do that from, you know, decades ago, and this company be thriving today is a great sign. Um, so I, I really just, I, they're, they're, they are a big dog in this field. And I think we're all uh, well rewarded typically for finding these companies. I will mention, Nick, thanks again to your diligence that the stock has not been a great performer. I mean, it's it's basically flat with where I recommended it in June of 2019. So we're coming up almost two years now and the market's up 35% and we're flat. Um, so that's disappointing to me, but you know what? Not everything wins or wins all the time. I like this kind of company for the next couple of decades. Yeah, I don't think I don't think uh, the, the demand for the services they provide aren't going down anytime soon. So, so we'll see what happens next with this company. The, the other one uh, that popped out to me in this trash subsector was a company I had never heard of until I started doing some preparation uh, for, for this podcast. That's Darling Ingredients, ticker D-A-R. David, how did you find this company? Uh, so I'm glad you asked. So um, I found this company in 2012. And one of my favorite things about the Motley Fool, something that I helped create, is Motley Fool caps. And I'm assuming a lot of our podcast listeners would be familiar, and a lot of our Motley Fool Live fans would be familiar, but not everybody. So I just want to make it clear that caps.fool.com is a free site on the internet. It's part of the Motley Fool, and you can come in and rate stocks. So uh, you can thumb up a stock because you think that stock will beat the market or thumb it down. Sometimes if you had a, have a bad consumer experience, like you waited too long in line somewhere, you can go right on caps and thumb it down. And it makes me feel better. Uh, but you're ultimately making calls about the stock. Do you think it's going to beat the market or lose to the market? And either way, we'd love to hear from you. And a lot of people have contributed to that over time. And, I, and you get rated, you get scored against everybody else playing caps. So it's an addictive game for people who really love the stock market. Well, one of the small features of Caps, Nick, is you get a stock of the day. And there's just a new company, a ticker symbol each day. If you check your Caps page, if you're signed up for Caps. And so I have used that over the years to create lists of companies I hadn't heard of that I could research further. And I have culled those over the course of time. And a lot of my research process is to go through my Caps stock of the day suggestions. Again, this is just the service suggesting a stock that it thinks I might be interested in. And Darling Ingredients, earlier that same year of 2012, popped up on my radar. And I looked at it and I had never heard of it either. But Nick, you've got a little bit about the business to make it clear why maybe we all could have known because this company's been around for 100 plus years. Yeah, it's the nation's leading provider of rendering, recycling, and recovery solutions to the nation's food uh, food industry, uh, processes 10% of the world's inedible meat byproducts and is the largest collector and processor of used cooking oil in North America. Okay. Incredible. <laughs> why did, why, okay, you hear that description. Why is that uh, something that folks should be excited uh, about investing in? What, what's kind of the investment case here? Well, it's in this same niche that we're talking about. It's talking about cleaning up the world. And um, actually, you have a great stat here that you, you let me know about ahead of time. I'd forgotten this. But basically, for every pound of meat produced, there's one pound of inedible meat produced. And so what do we do with that? And how do we, how do we process it? What about all that cooking oil? Um, so this is a company that's helping clean up restaurants um, and kitchens, anybody who, who at slaughterhouses. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those companies you wouldn't otherwise have heard of unless you're a stock market fan and maybe a Motley Fool Stock Advisor member because members have owned the stock if they listened to us nine years ago for nine years and counting. It's ended up being a pretty good performer, very happy. That always makes me feel good when, when we're beating the market. But you know, 
from my standpoint, this is one of those companies that most people will never have heard of, Darling Ingredients, ticker symbol D-A-R. But those are some of my favorite stocks to find, especially when they outperform the market over long periods of time. Yeah, David, I, I just wanted to give you a, a couple numbers. So, so the part of the really exciting thesis for for Darling Ingredients is they take all this, uh, you know, all these these byproducts, and you can use it to produce uh, different different ingredients. So, one of the one of the things that they have is they own a fifty percent stake in Diamond Green Diesel, which is a partnership with Valero, one of the biggest uh, refiners um, in the world, and they produce uh, renewable diesel here in the United States, the most economic U.S. facility, largest in the U.S., second largest in the world. So, back when you know around the time David first recommended uh, this. Stock, they had an additional production uh, production capacity of 160 million gallons a year. In 2021, they have plans to expand that production uh, capacity to 675 million gallons a year in 2021. So increasing it another 400 million. They also have look through the 2023. They, they plan to open a new facility in 2023, where they're going to increase their total annual production to 1.2 billion gallons of renewable diesel. So that's almost a 10x uh, for when they first developed that facility, you know, almost 10 years ago. Uh, so really an incredible growth, a little over 10 years whenever that facility is done. So just incredible growth. Um, and you can only imagine, obviously, this, this huge push towards more greener fuels. Uh, um, that, that there's going to be lots more demand for that type of renewable diesel going into the future. So uh, a company that's had a lot of success, a lot of growth, but looks like even more growth ahead in a niche that I don't think anybody is going to come take away the beef tallow market from them. And that's part of the beauty of a great industrials company, right? They're doing something that's hard. It might be lower margin. It's often unattractive. But darn it, if they're doing it and doing it well, they are providing real value to society. They may be overlooked. They're certainly not on anybody's hot stock list. One other thing I have to say about Darling Ingredients, Nick, is if you and I were having this conversation one year ago, I wouldn't have been that happy about Darling Ingredients because the stock, after holding it for seven years from 2012 to 2019, it was basically flat with when I first recommended it. So all of the appreciation, it's now a triple. It's now more than tripled our money and is beating the market here nine years later. Uh, but all of that appreciation has happened in the last 12 months. And so I, I, I'm always wanting to remind all of my fellow fools that you have to show tremendous patience often uh, before you get your big return. And we saw that with much higher profile companies, Tesla, went sideways from 2014 to 19. For five years, Tesla, everybody's hottest stock, did nothing. It was way behind the market over that period of time. And then it exploded. So Darling has a similar looking chart. I mean, it's not as grand as Tesla's, but Darling has tripled in the last eight months. And that's all of our returns nine years later. Yeah, David, you mentioned Tesla, so I'll go out of order on our, on our, on our themes here and talk about uh, innovators in, in mature industries. And I think Tesla certainly fits that fits that bill. When you first recommended Tesla in November 2011, a very, very different company than it was today. So the thesis is it's pre-Model S, right? They're going to get this Model S out the door and, uh, and, and you know, finally have a, have a car for, for, for a larger number of people than the Roadster. Um, how, how has your perception of Tesla changed, you know, ever since that first recommendation? It's come a long way. I mean, all, all of us have had our, our perceptions constantly, probably, we've had to revise that about Tesla over the course of, yeah, now that the almost 10 years that we've had a recommendation in. Um, it, is, uh, it is a company that had a, a few key principles. Earlier, Nick, we went through the six traits of the rule breaker stock. One of them is top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry and in electric cars. When you talk about at scale, and then you talk about that fourth trait, 
good management, smart backing. I mean, you have Elon Musk making an electric car. That seemed like a good prospect to me 10 years ago. And I, this, it's certainly exceeded my wildest dreams at this point. It's up 127 times in value from our first pick of it. Uh, I wish any stock would go up 10 times in value over 10 years, let alone 127. It is in some ways a confirmation of the approach that I first wrote about in 1998 in our book, Rule Breakers, Rule Makers, where I laid out the very six principles that we've shared together this podcast. So when you're, when you're looking at companies that are disrupting the status quo, that are bringing amazing innovations uh, to bear, and you have visionary leaders. And Elon's not my favorite type of leader. There are lots of things I deeply admire about him. There are also some things I still have questions about, about Elon. But, but the truth is, net-net, he has been a wildly productive unbelievably valuable, um, I think, fellow American at this point in his life. And to think that Tesla was built on American soil and that we, and that the whole world has flipped toward electric cars. And then there are a number of other things Tesla's involved in as well, like solar. That is an incredible story. And I'm so happy that Motley Fool Rule Breaker members, whether you heard about it from us a year ago or 10 years ago, depending on how long you've been a member, if you've if you've owned this stock for any period of time, you are pleased as punch. And it is in many ways proof positive of the approach that we've talked about for 20 plus years. Yeah. You talk about when, when Tesla came public, I want to say it was the first automaker to come public in the U.S. in, in decades, going back, you know, maybe 50 plus years at the, at the time, which kind of ties into earlier, you talked about, you know, maybe maybe fads and things like that. Now there's all kinds of companies coming public in the electric vehicle market. W what do you make of, of kind of all these upstarts um, coming in to, to maybe challenge Tesla? A lot of people are excited about investing in those companies. Where where do those stand up relative to, to, to you know, you were excited yeah, to invest in Tesla. That's 10 years a great ago. question, Nick. Yeah, I, like a company like Nikola, for example, I don't have much interest in. I like companies that actually have products out there in the world. You're right. We did recommend um, Tesla before the Model S was out in force. So it was a a little bit of hope for the future there, but they'd already produced a wonderful sports car and it was clear that the technology was working. And Elon Musk himself, to me, gives me a lot of confidence that special things are going to happen. Uh, I don't necessarily see that in a lot of the new car startups. There's a lot of me too. Uh, there's a little bit of, uh, I mean, who's going to be the ultimate winner here? Well, I'm pretty sure Tesla's going to be an ultimate winner. Will BMW and Mercedes and GM manage to flip their models and become ultimate winners? We'll see. Um, I hope so for their sake. Uh, and then what about the third and fourth tier? You know, sometimes Warren Buffett we, he talks about the three eyes of every cycle. One of my favorite Buffett witticisms, you know, the three eyes of every cycle. First, there's the innovator. That's I number one. The second is, this, this one comes along next, the imitator. Of course, imitating the innovation. And then the third eye of every cycle is the idiot. And uh, well, that's a, a pejorative term and a little bit of, I'm having fun with that. But, you know, a lot of Me Too people show up in, in the later stages of rallies. And I, I often, and especially if they use SPACs to fund what they're doing, I, I actively question whether those will materialize into something of real meaning. But I know one thing, I'm just gonna stay focused, I hope you will too, on finding excellence, buying excellence and adding to excellence over time and selling mediocrity. So um, I can't speak to who is ultimately gonna, gonna win or lose, but the ones I'm invested in I'm confident in their wins. Uh, also, I do want to say that I love innovation and I love it when companies come along and challenge, you know, and invent something even better. So I, I'm by no means um, trying to talk down anybody who wants to compete head to head with Tesla. If you can compete head to head with Tesla and make inroads, 
I celebrate that. And that's a better world. And I, I hope I'm invested in you too. Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, I mentioned this theme is kind of innovators in mature industries. Another company that, that fits that bill is Proto Labs. That's P-R-L-B uh, is the ticker. And this kind of fits into this discussion we're having about fads, because I think well-documented in 2014, the hype cycle in this 3D printing additive manufacturing space uh, kind of peaked. Why does Protolabs stand out for you among that space? Because Protolabs is, I think in the past, maybe some other 3D printing companies have been recommended. Protolabs is the, is the lone remaining uh, standing company. Well, I mean, it's, it's really the one that succeeded most. And um, I, I think it's fair to say that I tend over the course of time when I do sell, which is very rarely and very infrequently, I typically will sell off my losers and I'll conclude that they are losers well after most of the rest of the world. So in my strength is my weakness. As I said earlier, I think a big part of Rule Breaker Investing, Nick, and all my fellow fools is that you keep holding and holding and holding. We just told the story of darling ingredients and you now have a triple, but you had to wait eight years before you got that. Um, so I, I'm instructed by that, but I do think that ultimately, if I decide a company is not going to win, uh, then I will finally sell. Again, everybody else is already sold by that point, but that's okay because you're going to be rewarded far more often holding winners than failing to sell losers. If you play the math out, and I have in real time in front of Molly Pool members for 27 years now, you're going to see the math works wildly to your favor to overhold everything. And so I overhold my losers. But in this case, you know, if I start deciding the industry or the world has changed, Nick, and I get disconsolate about one or another company, I will sell them. We've done that certainly before in Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor. Proto Labs has ended up being the company that kept thriving. You know, in a world where lots of people were competing to make a 3D printer, um, these guys were using 3D printers in order to make rapid overnight prototypes of things and send you a 3D version of it through the mail so that you could, as a marketing person at your corporate meeting the next morning, show what the packaging is that you've intended for this product. So you could, you could have a 3D printed, prototyped, rapid delivery overnight business, kind of like FedExing your idea in tangible form to show off. And that's been in a world of innovation. The last 10 years have seen more innovation than probably the last 100 years combined. Um, you can see how this company has thrived, and indeed it has. So that's why Protolabs was a rule breaker and continues to be a rule breaker, and it's been a winning stock too. Yeah, it's it's been able to stand out uh, from from the crowd. I mean, if if you just look at look at a chart, uh, it's it's been able to massively outperform uh, many of those other companies in the space. Now, there's been a little bit of renewed excitement around 3D printing. I know Kathy Wood and her Arc Investment Fund has had some heavy investment in, in 3D printing. Are you are you uh, what's your excitement level on, on this subsector today going forward? Well, I mean, I I, I like it very much. I sure. Um, it, it makes a lot additive manufacturing, which is another phrase that people use to describe 3D printing. Um, basically using a printer, not just to print a laser printed piece of paper with your words on it, which is what most of us thought of when we thought of Hewlett Packard and our printers, but instead printers are printing things. It might be literally the wing of an airplane. So it could be printed in metal. It could be printed in plastic, uh, can take lots of other forms. And I mean, our, the human race is so inventive that we will continue to dream up new, more efficient ways to, to, to make stuff and to make new stuff. So I really love the idea that you can not just print your book report, but print almost anything in the future if it's efficient enough. Certainly not everything can be printed. Not every, not Zoom does not solve all 
um, human connection problems. Um, I think, I, you know, I, I love that we have Zoom and Motley Fool Live. I love that we have our podcast reaching out to people. There are also real benefits of face-to-face as well. So I don't want to overstate the case for additive manufacturing, but I've always been a fan and we've had this, these investments in place for a long time. And sure, I love it over the next 10 years. Absolutely. So the last theme I wanted to talk about is renewable energy and two very different picks uh, again here. I think a lot of people would, would see how renewable energy fits under this rule breaker universe, important emerging industry. We've got Nextera Energy and Solar Edge, a utility and a, and a component manufacturer. You know, how do you think about renewable energy as an investment theme? And then th- talk about the differences between the, these two companies and their, their, the way they are playing into that theme. Well, thank you for teeing it up that way, Nick. I mean, what you're showing us is that there is a wide disparity. It's such a big industry and a big opportunity that you have totally different players doing totally different things, all still early stage. I mean, most of the world's energy continues to come from fossil fuels. But looking backward from the future, how can you and I not conclude that most of the world's energy in the future will come from the sun, which is the most powerful source in our solar system? Energy always was but only now are we starting to develop the technology that can harness that along with a human consciousness and an appreciation for how to make that work when we were used to digging stuff up uh, in the earth. So, I mean, it's such an obvious to me place that the world's energy is headed. It can't get there all at once. It's still inefficient in a lot of ways. It needed some government backing in order to make, Germany spent a lot of its own money to make solar work or to make wind work. Um, so there are a lot of forward-thinking forces that are that are going to make this real. But yeah, the two companies you mentioned, Next Era Energy, U.S. company started out as Florida Power and Light. That's still a big part of the business, but they used that big utility, that big Florida utility. They started peeling off some of their funds and investing in wind and investing in solar. And it, it took on the name Next Era Energy. And uh, yeah, the ticker symbol is NEE. And I first recommended it in January of two years ago. So we've had it for a couple of years. Uh, it's about a double, which considering it's largely a utility, that's not a bad move at all. We've well crushed the market with that company. And today, Next Era Energy is literally the number one player worldwide for profit in wind and solar. So how can you not love that? What's not to love there? And uh, so Love that. And then, yeah, then on the other hand, we have an Israeli company that makes a component of solar panels. And this stock has been even better than Next Era Energy. The company's name is Solar Edge, the ticker symbol is SEDG. If you are a Motley Fool Stock Advisor member, you're probably pretty happy with this one because we've recommended and re recommended it a number of times. And the stock has basically gone up, uh, it's tripled in just a brief time. We've had it since September 2019. Really briefly, When you have a solar panel, which one day I look forward to having, I don't have this in my life yet, but I look forward to this. When you have a solar panel, it gathers the direct current from the sun that needs to be converted into AC, from DC to AC to work to power your home. And so you need to have inverters that can change over that direct current to alternating current. And that's what Solar Edge's products do. There are only a few companies. It's again, sort of an oligopoly in the world. This is still early days for this industry, but they are at huge volume, a real player here. And, and so here we are, two totally different companies, Next Era Energy and Solar Edge, both of them well beating the stock market and beautifully positioned, not just looking two years ago, but I think next two decades. Right, yeah, so, so both of these in their particular niches are, are- oligopoly, very highly concentrated markets with this opportunity for, for incredible growth. So, you know, 
we want to look for those places where the market is concentrated, where, where, you know, you have clear beneficiaries of that growth into the future where versus, you know, maybe solar panels historically have had a little bit more challenges uh, because those are a little bit more of a commodified market with many more competitors. Yeah, no question. And, you know, I, I, there is something to be said about, you know, it's harder to make hardware than it is to make software. I think everybody recognizes that these days. Software is higher margin, et cetera. But turns out we still need, I like to have a desktop computer that I'm speaking to you from today, right? I like hard goods around me and somebody's got to make them. And, uh, and you know, those that do usually do it so at real scale. And those are good businesses. I realize it, it can be commoditized. That's true. By the way, quick side note, just, just days before we recommended Solar Edge in the summer of 2019, the CEO tragically died. And this he had colon cancer. It had been pre-announced a couple of years earlier. He stepped down, and then the next day he died of colon cancer, which is really sad. Guy Sella, true visionary, you know, never will be as well known as Elon Musk, but um, just a, a, a really good person. And a reminder that the business of business is always going to be human. Um, and so... Uh, you know, quick shout out to Guy Sella, his vision and the company that he created. And, you know, we saw that we lost our CEO as we were writing up that stock recommendation. I'm so glad we went through with it. We weren't scared about that situation. You can see how great companies have great leaders who can step up and, uh, and have great cultures that allow them to continue to innovate. So sometimes there's a little bit too much of a cult of the CEO in this world. People are too focused on the Elon Musk's when they should be, th- or Steve Jobs, when they should be thinking about the culture that surrounds them, that probably like good soil has a lot of other really good stuff growing. And we should tend to be a little bit more uh, forgiving of, of, you know, losing the big, uh, losing LeBron James. Uh, there are a lot of other good basketball players. And, and so, so to me, Solar Edge, part, part of its story is that reminder. Yeah. So I, I guess, um, yeah, what advice do you have for folks? I mean, in this case, you, you proceeded forward with with, with the recommendation. Uh, yeah, because you're going to see these types of things in all types all types of investments, not just you know Solar Edge or, or others. So, what advice do you have for folks when something like this does happen for a stock that they own? Yeah, I would say um, you know, in most cases, you've probably pre-thought about it. Like, how many years have people talked about what is Berkshire going to do when Warren is gone? You know, and when Buffett and Munger. Well, the answer is Berkshire's probably going to thrive. I mean, there are a lot of great businesses. It's an unusual situation because it's kind of a holding company. But let's go with a very recent example. How about Nick? What would happen? Do you think if if Jeff Bezos eventually stepped down from from Amazon? Wait, wait, he just did. Jeff Bezos right. just did step down. He announced in Q3 this year he will be stepping down. The stock like didn't move the next day, that announcement. Now, a lot of people were worried when Steve Jobs is gone, will Apple be the same? Well, look what Tim Cook has done, right? So I believe that if you believe, together our belief will be rewarded. Not every company has great leadership. Not every culture is that sustainable. But if you're looking one click down and you're thinking about, you know, that company and who's set up for succession? Have they thought about it, talked about it, et cetera? I mean, in the case of Solar Edge, they were all set to announce their new CEO. And so was Amazon, as we saw. So I think it's instructive that typically we're overrating losing the big visionary leaders. Uh, turns out there are lots of other good people too. And if we stay invested, uh, we will benefit from that. Wow, has Apple done amazingly since Steve Jobs sadly left the earth. It's been an unbelievable performance and a hold. It's grown to a size Steve maybe himself couldn't have dreamed of. Yeah, David, this has been a great conversation. I want to remind everybody what the themes are we discussed and, and then wrap things up. So we discussed railroads, 
trash as, as industrial niches. We discussed, uh, we discussed renewable energy and we discussed innovators in mature industries. And we talked about Proto Labs and Tesla. So before we go away, uh, David, I know a lot of people are talking about kind of this energy transition, the growth of, of renewable energy, um, this idea of concerns around, around climate change. Folks are wanting to know how can I invest in, in this in this coming uh, energy transition. So what advice do you have for, for anyone looking to invest in the energy transition upcoming over the next several decades? I mean, haven't we already provided that, Nick? And ha hasn't your good work in identifying these themes already kind of nudged us toward that answer? I would continue to ask who are the top dogs and first movers in the important emerging industries. And industries are sometimes not always writ as large as, uh, as the, what I'm trying to say is when we say alternative energy or the future of energy, that is like 23 different industries. And inside each of those industries, there are players that are winners and there are companies that have great stories and are doing important work in this world. So the world of technology is the world that we live in today. Everything is a tech stock. You'll never hear me say tech stock except when I'm making jokes about it because I've never used that phrase. I think that technology is what's driving every company. And, uh, and so from my standpoint, let's just keep our eyes open and ask you know, who's popping up with the next great invention. And it's not that it's been announced. I'm not gonna buy your stock just because you you say your R&D has come up with this. I'm talking about who's actually out there in the marketplace with real products and services or the prospect of immediate launch of real products and services. And so we can be a little bit conservative relative to the, the rap, rapscallions who get in in really early days. We can wait for those things to come public to be deployed at scale, then we can buy the stock and we will do really well in the coming decades with that approach. Okay, then my last question for you, David, is you always say you wanna invest, make your investments represent your, your best vision for the future. What is your best vision for our future in energy and manufacturing? Well, I, I, I think that it would be, first of all, that it's gotta be great products. So, um, uh, if, it's, if it's just gonna be a lame 3D printed model that somebody, um, you know, it was still impressive that they invented it, but if it's not solving real world problems, then it's not going to be sustainable. So for us focused on industrials and energy, I would say, you know, what's what's real? To me, the sun, the sun is very real and figuring out how to harness that and make that answer far more human problems than we ever had before. We now have the technology to start doing that. So I, I'm excited by those prospects. Um, I would say a lot of it, a reminder again, uh, trait number four of rule breakers, it's the people. So beyond just the industry of the technology, ask yourself, who's the founder of that company? Who's the chief science officer? What's the culture of that company? Those things really matter in terms of who's going to win, who's going to lose uh, on the stock market in the future. So I think you're trying to integrate your right side of your brain and your left side of your brain as you come up with new answers. And always be, by the way, in conclusion, always be open to new answers Tesla could be disrupted one day, probably will happen at some point. Um, let's not fear that. In fact, let's try to be invested in any company that does that. Um, so I, I love this space and I think it's really fun that um, we had this conversation today. Thank you for the invitation, Nick, all your good work and uh, the great work happening for Industry Focus. Yeah, well, th thank you, David, for joining me. I hope we can do it again uh, sometime. If, if listeners enjoyed uh, this podcast and haven't listened to David's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, highly recommend uh, checking that out wherever fine podcasts are available. David, uh, until next time, thank you for joining me. Cool on. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. 
So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For David Gardner, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and fool on. Thank you.